Ladies and gents, uh, thanks for joining us for another show on engineers. Uh, today, we've got Robert Hook, who's joining us as an engineering manager from Clio. And what these guys and girls are doing are, are bettering spending for organizations. We're going to dig into some of that. We're going to dig into uh, some of the challenges and some of Robert's excitement around uh, data. We're going to be talking a little bit about infrastructure as a service and many, many other things, as you can see in the uh, comments below on some of the subjects. So, Robert, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Hi, Elliot. Thanks for having me here today. Going quite well. Thank you. Pleasure. Give us an intro on you. Yeah. So I've been involved in IT, computing, playing with computers for uh, 38 years. Uh, or that's 38 years that I've been paid to do it. There's a few years prior to that when I was a kid, as we all were. Um, I've been involved in virtually every vertical that you can think of, uh, from dog registration systems through library, through property management, GIS, police systems and insurance and banking. I think genuinely the only sector I've never done much work in is medical. The common thread has always been about data. It's always been about how we can get data in front of people, how we can get data from people, how we can get data to people, but more importantly, how we can safely and securely use data for business outcomes. Tell me a little bit about what's changed or what you've seen change. I've not... seen things. I have seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I think I've seen several cycles uh, of data tech over, over my years. Um, I was fortunate enough to be there at the time uh, when the new and exciting thing on the market was relational database systems. Okay. Uh, and there was definitely a sweep through whether the, the exciting thing was to put it all into Oracle or into, into Ingress at the time. Um, the, the great dawning of data. <clears throat> there was, of course, then the big, big push around the turn of the century to start uh, building big databases. And okay. there was a lot of technical changes there where, where people were going from sort of like megabyte level databases up to up to hundreds of megabytes or yeah. maybe even gigabyte at the time. Um, and that brought all sorts of challenges. Next phase that really came through was the phase that kicked off, I guess, around about 12, 15 years ago, uh, where we looked at moving towards big data and that was the biggest explosion. Uh, it was like the, the Cambrian explosion of life. Um, the, the number of products on the market exploded, the number of disciplines exploded. And it was really about that point that we started getting a lot of specialization in terms of what engineering meant in that data space. Um, particularly, I think it was only around the 15-ish, 10-ish year mark that companies started saying, well, we've got to start measuring the quality of our data. We've got to start measuring the um, how we are managing our data. We've started thinking about data yeah. governance. We started to think about ontologies. And this is this is all quite, quite recent activity. Okay. Uh, how would you explain big data to someone walking to them in the street if they were non-technical? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's actually quite an easy, easy explanation. It's one that, uh, one that I'm... I've, cheerfully have stolen which is any data that's too big to fit on one computer okay i like that <laughs> that, that is nice and simple 
it's a nice simple nice simple uh nice simple motto and uh, it's funny how it evolves because quite a lot of companies quite a lot of business spaces they don't actually have a lot of data and they okay. could actually put most of their data onto one machine if they wanted to okay not a great idea but it's it's feasible and i think that that's where the big differentiator comes from if, if we're really talking about big data with a capital b and a capital d yeah it's any time where it's difficult to manage without spreading it across a number of different machines okay. and because you've spread it across a number of different machines all of a sudden you need specific tooling you need to be able to distribute your processing across it. you need to be able to network it. you need to be able to treat it as a, as a management cluster and the complexities are, uh, escalate fairly quickly conversely though of course in the day of cloud yeah aws or azure or, or yeah. uh, Google will just take care of all that complexity for you. So the problem has gone away again. It is is the data game purely financial? You know, let, let's just use an example data to understand uh, what consumers want or being risk averse data governance to protect our data for leaks and security and anything else. Is it purely financial? Do you think? No, yes and no. Um, a lot of very large data sets, leaving aside the social media data sets, a lot of very large data sets are at their heart financial. Um, we spend money, we buy things, we sell things yep. uh, at, at an astounding rate. So we have extremely large data sets, which are very fine-grained levels of uh, records of transactions, and that's interesting. It's important. We need to be able to do that. Yeah. But what is quite interesting is that you can start to derive individual behaviours mm -hmm. by looking at the patterns of spend, looking at the patterns of purchasing, looking at the patterns of, of data transfer. Yeah. I was first exposed to this idea uh, well over a decade ago, around the turn of the century, mm. uh, when I was working with a payments processor in Australia. And we covered payments for online payments, so using a credit card to buy things online mm. for most of EMEA, all of the Pacific Rim, most of South America, yep. huge chunks of Europe. And we used to see this strange pattern in the data, which was every day, every working day, around 6pm in Singapore, we'd see a massive, massive, massive spike in transactions for mm. one vendor. Now, we had, uh, on the operation side, all of the data was anonymized, so we didn't know what was going on. And mm. it was causing a problem. It was weird. It wasn't until somebody who had lived in Singapore pointed out that Singapore at the time was the only place on the planet, you could order Kentucky Fried Chicken online. And everybody in Singapore at the time was crazy for Kentucky Fried Chicken. So what was happening was people were stopping work, getting home, pulling the credit card out, and ordering home-delivered Kentucky Fried Chicken. This is the sort of thing which you can now derive from data. Yeah. Uh, and it's a lot easier now because we've got a lot more fine-grained data. We can start deriving behaviours mm. of cohorts of people, of individual people, and that's powerful, and that power gives both great opportunities but great risks. Um, 
we can, generally speaking, your bank would be able to determine where you are and when you're travelling. Mm. Is this something we're comfortable with? Yes, uh, yes and no. It depends how it's used. It depends on how the business then is deciding to gain insight, what knowledge they gain from their data, and then what they do with that knowledge. The data itself is is, uh, is neutral. Yeah. The knowledge is dangerous. Yeah. The uh, I I feel the the knowledge is probably quite dangerous. You could probably, uh, if if you had data on someone's spending habits, a little bit like the Kentucky Fried Chicken scenario, um, you would probably be able to trace back someone's whereabouts if you start looking at their habits on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Yes, um, quite definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but and th- th- there's an interesting problem there, though, because while you have that power and you can gain that knowledge, you could use that knowledge for the benefit of the customer. True. Um, as an example, would it be attractive to customers if we did a ra- made arrangements with your favourite coffee shops so that when you buy your coffee, you get a discount? Yeah, that's it's good for the customer. It's good for the it's good for the uh, the vendor. True. Um, is that too scary? Yeah. To have that to have that knowledge. Difficult it's a to good say. question. It's it's, it's a good question. question. I'm I'm sure we're going to see the answer probably in the next few years, no doubt. Uh, yes, yeah. It's. Uh, not to give too much away about Plio, but that is uh, the sort of conversation we're having internally because we're realising that we do potentially have that power and it's not a technological problem anymore. It's yeah. a problem around how we want our customers to, to trust us and how we want our customers to perceive how we are working with them. Yeah. Do you want to give us that pitch on Plio? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Plio because yeah. um, Plio's uh, an unusual company. Okay. <laughs> um, just to, to give you a little bit of context on how unusual company Plio is, I was in a call uh, in my personal life, completely unrelated to Plio, with a, another company uh, talking to the CTO. And I'm happy to mention I was in Plio, and he chewed my ear for about five minutes, raving about how good Plio's product was. And how much he loved it, and how easy it made his life. It's like yeah. you don't get very many products where people do that. Okay, yeah, true. So, Plio was uh, founded in 2015 by uh, two guys in Denmark, Jeppe Rindom and uh, Nico Perra. Um, and they wanted the, the, their initial goal and their desire was what's a product we can bring to market that just makes everybody's day a little bit easier? Okay. How? What's the thing that we could we could move the needle on that makes things easier? Yeah. And what they picked on was the idea of trying to make um, expenses, yeah, employee expenses easier because everyone hates expenses. It's, it's yeah. every every solution before Plio was miserable. It's grown astoundingly since yeah. 2015. Um, we are on a amazing growth trajectory. When I joined in June uh, 2021, uh, I was employee number 300. 
we have just passed 518 as of wow. yesterday, and we're on the way to 1,000 by the end of the year. Wow. Which is uh, startling growth. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely unpredictable. We're doing very comfortably financially. Uh, we had a last series C funding round last year yeah. uh, in December. Took our valuation to 4.7 billion wow. US, um, which was very exciting for everyone working there because it's like, wow, we are now actually on paper bigger than Monzo Bank, which is not something that we any of us, I think, expected. Um, but it's it's huge. It's it gives us incredible freedom to get things done. On the surface of things, I wouldn't have expected that either. No, no. Well, it's uh, technically it was Denmark's first first tech unicorn. Okay. Um, absolutely, absolutely crazy growth. Running at about twenty thousand uh, customers, mainly SMEs. Uh, historically, we've targeted sort of like the up to about five hundred person company. Okay. Primarily because bigger companies, bigger enterprises, often have a very complicated and well-established arrangement about their expenses and yep. complicated accounting procedures. So yep. it's a little bit more difficult for them to want less barriers to entry, etc. Yeah, and that equates to somewhere well north of about 150,000 active users at the moment. Okay. Um, which is pretty good. We're focused mainly on the UK, Denmark, Sweden, Germany, Ireland, and Spain mm-hmm. um, up until today. Uh, we have a goal now to spread throughout Europe. Uh, we want to hit every European country. Uh, we've just launched uh, Finland and Austria nice. this week. Uh, and we're probably going to be rolling out two countries a month for the rest of the year. Nice. Which is pretty cool. And we're setting up we're setting up uh, offices in a lot of these countries as we go, or at least a small uh, physical presence. Yep. So, yeah, we are, we are on the ray. In terms of what we do, well, why is Plio so great? If you go to our, our website, you'll see the, 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 the tagline, the office, the pitch, and it, it really pins it down. Plio is the spending solution for forward-thinking teams. Yep. The idea is that we want to get rid of all that pain around paying. Mm-hmm. If you're a small business and you've got, I don't know, two dozen employees and they're buying stuff for the company and they're spending the money and they're paying bills for the company. Yep. It's traditional ways of doing that have been a pain in the neck for everyone. They're a pain in the neck for the employee. They're doing end of month expense reports. They've got some complicated procedure for yep. signing off on bills. It's it's just horrible. The employee hates it. The employer hates it. The bookkeeper hates it. It's just terrible. <laughs> and we've all been in businesses where that's the, the case. Yep. So what we aim to do is take away that particular pain. How can we make it easy for your employees to spend money? But there's a secret. There's a secret source in here. That's not what we sell. What we sell is an idea. We sell an idea that you as an employee can trust your employee, you as an employer can trust your employees. You can trust them with your money. You can trust them to do the right thing. And no. you know, we empower people to have that trust. And how that manifests is you want you want your employee to be able to spend your money. Give them give them a card. Yep. Spending limit. 
and we smooth the road for being the account being able to make that spending accountable. Okay. Absolutely, absolutely transparent how that money's getting spent. You've got absolute control over what happens, and you don't have to be involved with it. You can just let it happen. And that's um, that's the scary thing. That's scary for enterprises. Enterprises don't like trusting people. <laughs> okay. So. I think uh, I think to make that a little bit more concrete, we'll talk about some of the some of the sort of use cases that we yeah. have there because this is important uh, to understand what we do. So let's imagine that you are running a bar, dozen odd people. One of the things that's going to happen on a Friday night is you run out of crisps. Yeah. Oh no! What do we do? Run out of crisps. Somebody runs down to Tesco, buys a few dozen packets of crisps. So the the expenses procedure is he takes the Plio card out, he pays for it on their phone, comes up a reminder, hey, don't forget to take a photo of the receipt. He yep. pulls, his, pulls the receipt out, snaps it, pushes the go button, and that's the end of the process. Nice. There is no expenses process past there. Perfect. Um, we've got back-end integrations with things like Xero and other accounting systems, so yep. we can do end-to-end -end of that. Another example, um, in my role as engineering manager, there's all sorts of software subscriptions that I have to pay for. Yeah. What am I paying for at the moment? Uh, Lucid is one of the ones I'm paying for. Shout out to Lucid. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Retrium. They issue invoices. They send me invoices. Our software, or part of our software, which we call Fetch, watches my email, sees the invoice come in, goes, ah, I can see the number on that. I can see the vendor looks like one we've got, and yep. I can see the see the transactions gone on the card. Uh, I'll just glue those two receipts together, and off you go. Yeah, simple. So all of those subscriptions, the paperwork for me is zero. Yeah, I don't need to do anything. It just happens, and that is amazing. This is so cool. I've been in the position of having to deal with these sort of paperwork before, and in previous roles, I would spend anywhere up to a day a week just dealing with that kind of paperwork. Now, nothing. Wow. Crash okay. to zero. It's... That um, plugs into... Oh, sorry, please go on. No, I was going to say, it's. it seems like an extremely seamless process. I'd be, I'd be quite interested to know, are there any security restrictions on, you know, if someone not necessarily goes AWOL, it seems like it's tied with a spending limit to each account so you could limit what someone is potentially going to go and spend in their own respective role um but i think the seamlessness just feels because i've been there i do expenses um, <laughs> take a photo and boom it's already plugged into uh, i think i've used some software where it naturally goes to my zero account and it will probably match up the two um nice Okay. And the question, how do we make that safe? The question of how we make it safe really comes back to the fact that we really sell trust. And okay. you get to dial, as a, as a customer, you get to dial up and down how much trust you have. So you can set up, uh, you can set up review processes. You can yeah. set up, uh, somebody has to tick the box yes on if it's over this much. Uh, you can set up flagging for, for transactions which are kind of unusual. Um, the one that uh, the previous company we used to joke about was you can spend it on anything, but don't buy any cars. Uh, <laughs> we could have, we could have set up a, a filter on that, for example. Yeah. And that's um, that's the other side of trust. Trust is 
absolutely uh, in the DNA of, of Plio. And, nice. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit because I think it's important for how we do our engineering. Yeah. Uh, but the, the f how do you trust your employees? You trust the employees by empowering them. Yeah. And part of the empowering is to have a safety net under them so that they can't fall through the gaps. They can't trip over and, and plummet to their, their financial death. Makes sense. Uh, so the two things go, go hand in hand, empowerment and trust and having backup behind it so that Good. you can handle things going wrong. That's pretty solid. Should, should we talk about um, some some of the products that you've got and some of the engineering that actually underpins some of those products? A little bit like the intro, you know, you've got you've got some interesting challenges around data. Quite clearly, it's uh, why you're part of the business. You want to talk about things like data meshes, infrastructure as a service, yeah. et cetera, which we will. But I think it'll be a, quite a nice tie between some of the project, sorry, some of the products like Fetch that you've built and some of the engineering that underpins them yeah. and the business. It's a, it's a really good uh, place to segue. One of the things that is the enabler for Plio's business is that historically it's been very engineer-led. It's been very um, tech-focused. Yeah. Uh, one of our founders, Nico, at heart, is definitely, first and foremost, an engineer. Solid. Um, this means that we have structured the organisation such that teams are very, very, very autonomous. It's very high levels of autonomy down at the team level, which is good and bad. Uh, because it means if you've got autonomy at the team level, there are complexities of ensuring consistency across teams. Yeah. This, by trusting our teams technically and providing the autonomy, empowering them to be autonomous, means we can iterate very quickly on technology. And we do iterate extremely quickly on technology. That's then underpinned by a few architectural choices. Mm -hmm. We're cloud-first, um, mainly AWS cloud. Uh, we have data assets in BigQuery, which in uh, GCP, which I'll come back to in a minute, Google yeah. Cloud. We use uh, almost exclusively Kubernetes under AWS uh, for deployment. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a few other bits and pieces, the serverless bits and pieces, uh, mainly in Node for the serverless. But the core of it is Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. That gives us great flexibility. Uh, it means that we can iterate and we can roll out, roll back, scale up, scale down uh, with effectively zero effort. We then manage all of that infrastructure with uh, Terraform, or primarily Terraform. Mm -hmm. And we have wired our Terraform into a CI-CD, a continuous integration, continuous deployment uh, pipeline using a product called N0. And this, this is interesting because it means that a change in, significant changes in our infrastructure mm. can go from developers desktop to production in generally speaking less than 20 minutes 
there's a review process. We use GitOps to, to ensure that there's reviews. We pre-flight the changes in a testing environment. We get the thumbs up to, to, to apply the change and it can sail out there. So we can we push out new versions um, multiple times a day okay, of our nice. platform. It's always shifting. Of course, to enable that, uh, we have embraced a microservices architecture. Yeah. Uh, I've lost track of how many services we're running. It's somewhere somewhere on the order of about 50 services. I think. Okay. The fact that we have got microservices architecture and there are so many and we can deploy is it doesn't really matter how many we have. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a constantly shifting number. So those microservices are, again, as I said, deployed in Kubernetes, which gives us superb ability to, to roll out, roll back, scale out, scale down. Yeah. Uh, at, at, a, at a second's notice. The services themselves are a mixture of Kotlin and Node. I'd say probably at the moment it'd be about three quarters of the services are written in Kotlin uh, okay. as opposed to Node. Um, but we are also language agnostic uh, in the data space. We've got things in Python, uh, we've got things in Go, uh, we've got a few bits and pieces of Java floating around. Yep. Uh, and really what goes on inside the container doesn't matter. It's what goes on inside the container stays in the container. Uh, what else is going on? So with respect to data, uh, because we have a microservices architecture, uh, if a service needs its own local storage, yep. uh, we use uh, Postgres, uh, provided by Amazon RDS. Yep. Um, and again, that's a, a, a hell of an enabler for, for a company like ours who wants to iterate quickly. Because Amazon take care of the nuts and bolts of running those services, yep. of keeping them up and guaranteeing it. We never really have to think too hard about any questions of scaling or any questions of provisioning. Yep. We define it in Terraform, we push the button. A little while later, the database is up and running and, and we're off and rolling. That's about the extent of it. Things get a little more complicated with our analytical data. Mm -hmm. And this is this is where the this is where my main interest is in okay. and also, also uh, where we have the biggest complexities. So our data space is needs some love. It needs some love and attention. Uh, because Plio has been a growing organization, has been a rapidly growing organization because we've gone from two people in a shed to 500 on towards 1,000, we move fast and things break. Yeah. <laughs> And what we're seeing in the data space is the problem that now we've had uh, three generations of two, two generations of, of change. Yeah. And we're carrying the technical debt from two generations to stage, and we're rapidly building the third generation of technical debt. Okay. And that's not great. The core of our data space is um, BigQuery in Google. It's an interesting beast, BigQuery, because it's it manages to successfully hide the uh, MapReduce type queries and the MapReduce type jobs uh, and hide it all behind what looks like an SQL interface. Okay. Um, and because it appears to be just an SQL database, it's incredibly accessible for analysts. Okay. Uh, yeah. If we were using something like DynamoDB, where it's completely different query semantics, yep. uh, it maybe give us the same power, give us the same sort of performance, but it is opaque to analysts. Uh, 
Yeah. And that's uh, that can't be undervalued. There's uh, interesting problems come out because we have some parts of the data in the operational plane is in AWS and the uh, yeah. analytical plane is in BigQuery. I was going to First ask you foremost, about that. I won't, I won't cut yeah. the flow, but as in there's obviously large levels of storage in BigQuery. What, what was that decision between AWS and GCP? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good one. And really the driver for the decision was how attractive BigQuery is from the point of view of the okay. analytical users. Right. Um, the interface for it is just feels comfortable for analysts. Okay. Uh, and we can't we can't uh, undervalue that. Um, from a technical point of view, I think the big benefit for BigQuery as an analytical store, and it's a very much a traditional data warehouse we have there, is that it scales automatically and indefinitely. Uh, much like S3, uh, okay, yep. you, can't put, you can't put enough load on it to ever notice it slow down or to be a bottleneck. Uh, yep. It will always respond in roughly linear time, no matter what you do. Yeah. Of course, behind the scenes, it means that you may be going up and down on your spend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that query that query across uh, across uh, thirty eight million transactions might have come back to you in a second and a half. But it, uh, by the way, that just cuts to five euros. Um, these yeah. are <laughs> that, yeah. that is always a fun challenge. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the the glue between the two is also kind of uh, fiddly. Uh, because as you can imagine, being a financial institution, we have very, very, mm. very careful boundaries around all of our estate. Uh, and then we need to deal with the challenge of taking things cross-cloud. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, that's an ongoing journey. Um, we can carefully poke holes in our firewalls and carefully ring-fence the who can talk to what between yeah. clouds. Uh but each provider is constantly iterating on how to make that safer, how to establish uh, effectively dedicated VPNs that span the two native two clouds. Yeah, I don't think that journey is finished yet. The security of, of linking that is going to be a, an ongoing problem. Well, yeah, what's that journey been like of going through two generations of technical debt as well? You know, there's still... Um, yeah, building and being as transparent as possible from <clears throat> a data perspective, potentially rewriting services and carrying some of the old with you. What what's that journey been like? Uh, difficult. <laughs> yeah, is <laughs> the best bet. One of the uh, one of the things we've seen, uh, we have a few services that were written early, uh, like an early version, early. Uh, uh, instantiation for yeah. sort of version version 0, 0.0 of a, of a data warehouse. Uh, the people who built it in the first place have left. Uh, they've left behind some overly complex code uh, and finding resources who can, or finding staff who can deal with that is a problem. Not part because, not entirely because it's in Kotlin and uh, Kotlin skills are a little bit all over the place in the market. Uh, yeah. A lot of people use Kotlin for uh, Android development, of course. Of course, yeah. 
not so many people using it on the back end, even though it's incredibly capable on the back end. Uh, And by the time you say we want the back end and we want people to be data literate, we've got a very small pool of people to to source for for that. So there's a barrier there, barrier of entry for maintaining the, the code. The biggest problem, though, is that because um, Plio was data-centric from the beginning, because Plio wants to use its data for uh, day-to-day operation of the business, the early iterations of our data platform are still in active use for operational activities. Yep. Uh, the analogy... <clears throat> We could the analogy that that's come to, come to come to mind for a few of us in recent uh, recent months is that we know what has to change, we know we have to change it, but we've got a race car that's running around the track. I knew you were using that one. I just knew you were we're, using that one. <laughs> we we are out there on the front of the car changing the engine while it's still going around the track, yeah. uh, and that is necessarily a complicated, really complicated problem. Um, it, it raises the question of how do we make the changes technically? Uh, how do we make the changes so they're transparent? How do we make changes so it affects people the least? But often it's a cultural change. Yeah. Uh, if we build a new delivery route for the same information, how can we help the teams that are using the operational information to transition from one to the other? How can we do that smoothly so that they can mm. still keep being on the, on the phone to the customer. Makes <clears throat> sense. Uh, and still keep uh, keep providing Clio's business. Makes um, sense. I wish, to, I wish there was an easy answer. Um, I've been, as I said, I've been doing this for 38 years. I've never seen a good answer for that one because it is cultural. It's always about the people. It's how can you... Do you have a culture that allows you to collaborate with people across teams, across domains, across competencies? Okay. Do you have a culture that uh, where everybody involved around that central problem trusts each other? Yep. So they will not assume that you're trying to break their world, they'll assume that you're trying to fix your world. Yep, that makes sense. <clears throat> and it's tough. It's a tough ride. Um, I'd, I'd like to say that the real solution for technical debt is don't create it in the first place. Uh, but that's kind it's of like bugs as well. Best best way to prevent bugs is don't make don't write bugs. <laughs> uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about um, data meshing uh, at Plio. Perfect segue to, to talk about this because that's really the core uh, of the other part of our problem. So I mentioned we've got technical debt problems. Yeah, technical debt problems are really rising from multiple uh, generations of our data warehouse. But the interesting problem is how can we get to the point where the providers of data who uh, are operational teams, our product teams, want to provide data for analysis? And that's a big cultural shift. We think that the solution to that is data mesh. Okay. and wow, we've got a long way to go on that. That's a big cultural shift. We've gone through this cultural shift, I think, um, different paces in different companies over the last few years with DevOps. Yeah, okay. 
we roll back the clock five-ish years and people started talking about DevOps. And this yep. was, this was a, an earth-shaking idea that maybe you get to the point where your product teams aren't just throwing your operations over the, over the fence to the dev guys, to the yep. ops guys. Now we, want, we need to do the same thing with data. Okay. How can we have a culture where people don't want to just throw the data over the fence to, yep. the, to the data guys? For us, it's fairly straightforward. Conceptually, great. We want uh, each of the product teams, ideally, can define a set of data. They're publishing a set of data. They take ownership of publishing that data. It's wrapped up with SLAs. It's got quality guarantees. It's versioned. All very nice. And that might be a database they're publishing. might be a Kafka topic they're publishing. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. The, 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 tech, the tech doesn't really matter. But if they are consciously producing a piece of uh, a data product, then tickety-boo, great, they own it from that point. Uh, our CTO actually, uh, Peter, Peter Jander, actually phrased it really well a few months ago. He said, we need to get to a point where we're not treating data as an accidental byproduct of what we do. Okay. That's nice. And that's what we've got at the moment. Data is, data is an accidental byproduct of our, of our operation. Yeah. And we need to flip that around to being a conscious thing that we are doing. And that is a huge change for engineers and yeah, product yeah. teams to think about there. This is, this is massive. We've started talking about this to all of our product teams, and mostly they're on board. Mostly they're like, yeah, we like this idea. Yeah. It has, a, it has a lot of benefits for us because uh, it takes away pain points that we have, and I think every company has, around what happens if the data coming from the operational plane changes. Okay. Changes at schema, it changes at semantics. How do we, how do we ensure that the people who are consuming the data in the analytics plane get timely understanding of the changes, or how the the semantics of the, of the data? That that that's every effectively every day something happens where it's like somebody's changed the table over here and <laughs> half the dashboard break. Um, so we know absolutely if we can move the needle towards data products. Even leaving aside data mesh, just data products. If we can move yep. the needle to there, takes away a butt ton of problems we've got. Okay. But zero level on that is that we realise we haven't got the tooling. Okay. And that's that's where I think the current um, uh, philosophy around data mesh falls down is. And if you talk to the data mesh guys, you talk to Sarmaker, you talk to some of the uh, evangelists in that space, they say it's not about the tech, and they are right. Every company needs to provide tools that are enablers yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. for data products. And really that, that highlights the things that we're missing from our architecture uh, is automation of data lineage, automation of data quality testing, um, common agreements about what the company's uh, ontology is. Uh, and wow, that, that was an adventure discovering that uh, you know we, we, we deal with with card transactions discovering that different teams had different definitions for what a transaction was and okay. the teams didn't know this until we started talking about it and they were like oh hang on yeah we have different understandings of what it means and that's that's always exciting so even before we get to the point of uh, saying okay bam that team the the uh, the team that's doing the the the, uh, the card payments is now going to publish a data product Wacko, they're going to own that all the way into our data data warehouse. Before we get there, we have to then be raising the understanding of data with our product teams, uh, making them data literate, and raising the literacy of data within the company 
uh, understand that it's not just about the bits and bytes, it's the understandings of the data, it's the semantics about the data, it's the ontology of what does Plio mean when it talks about a customer. If if someone's listening to this, your your journey now, uh, let's call it third gen, um, it seems like there's quite a lot of enlightenment around tooling and facilitation and enablement for for teams to be able to use this data. If someone's listening, what what's the best bit of advice you're going to give someone uh, to be able to excel and probably have less pains uh, at this moment in time? Uh, an idea, and this probably comes from a previous podcast, is I've seen a playbook being built, uh, almost like a a rules playbook of, and I, I'm thinking about that transaction case of um, this is what we call a transaction potentially, or this is maybe yeah. how we could actually operate something. I, I don't know if yeah, there's I learnings think... that you can give people. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think there's probably two pieces of advice, um, depending on the the size of the organisation that people are in and the culture of the of the organisation. But I would definitely emphasise the importance of um, having common language and common understandings. Mm. Uh, any organisation that has got different divisions or different departments or has uh, somehow a federation of competing tribes, yeah, uh, as a number of, number of banks I've worked worked with can be described as a federation of tribes that is constantly at war with each other. It's vitally important to have a common language and a common understanding of what your data is. Um, that's both the data at rest and the data in motion. Uh, do you have an understanding of how your data is moving? Do you have an understanding of where it's coming from? Do you have an understanding of where it's going? Do you have an understanding of who's responsible for it? Mm. And oh, very often the answer is no. And these are these are really tough questions. That, that they can be very, very hard to, to get a handle on, if, uh, particularly with a big organisation. But they're vital. You can't talk about your data unless you have a language to talk about it. You can't okay. talk about changes unless you have a common understanding of where you are now. Okay. The other thing I would add to that, though, as a piece of advice is the engineering around data uh, is incredibly dynamic. The tooling we're using now is not the tooling we were using five years ago. Okay. And it is not going to be the tooling we're using five years from now. Yep. Uh, if you think about it, five years ago, everyone was building Hadoop clusters and faffing about with, with Pig and Spark and Hive and all those bits and pieces. Nobody yeah. does it now. No. Five years from now, don't know what we'll be doing. Yeah. But whatever we're doing five years from now is not what we're doing now. Yeah. But the data, the data lives forever. Yeah. The tooling changes. You should expect that the tooling will change. You shouldn't be wrapped up in getting the perfect tooling because you're not going to get the perfect tooling and whatever okay. you're doing now, you're probably not going to keep doing Get the tooling that's good enough for the job. Get the tooling that's good enough to do what you need right now. But get the data structures right. Get the security around your data right. Get your models around your data right. Get an understanding of what your data means. Because that's yeah. going to live forever. Okay. Watch. Uh, maybe not forever. But um, I think if, you, if, if anyone listening is, is like, oh, I don't know, that sounds, sounds very, very abstract. 
go to your go to your CEO and say, do you want the company to be here 30 years from now? 30 years from now, is the company going to want to know what we were doing today? And your CEO is going to say, hell yeah. yeah. Because that CEO is not worried about just next year or next six months or getting to the end of the year. Yeah. That CEO is look, watching to see what his retirement plans are 30 years from now. Yeah. Um, knowledge and the data that underpins the knowledge you should expect lives forever. Okay. Or at least for the lifespan of the company. That's that's a really good philosophy. Go and do it, people. Yeah. Go and talk to the person I, I, or the peoples <laughs> and say, where do you want to be? Where do you want to be? Um, and, you know, the answer may be surprising. You may get the answer back, which is, no, I don't care about the data. In which case, yeah, that's if the business actually turns out not to care, yeah, then you probably saved yourself an awful lot of heartache and money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. True. You've um, you've really well summarized uh, and taken us on a little bit of a journey around um, Plio values, your cloud native approach, uh, your infrastructure as a service, data. So I, I, I want to thank you for that because it, it's been interesting, it's been compelling, and you're able to back that up with some real life value for for customers, but real life cases as well. Uh, bef before we disappear, it'd be it'd be great for people listening to understand can they fit into Plio's journey over the 518 to a thousand mm -hmm. people this year. Um, what, where are you hiring for? What are, are you hiring? hiring? Help, help us understand that. Okay. Yep. Well, this is uh, this is my chance to start saying, yeah, I'm looking for a bunch of data engineers and analysts <laughs> and analytical engineers. The um, first place uh, I will categorically say is if you're interested in coming on board with Plio, uh, find our website at plio.io and go to our careers page. Uh, we've got a incredibly, outrageously good internal recruitment team um, and people ops team. Love those people. They're great. Uh, so they are racing at the moment to get the rest of the position descriptions and open, open positions up. Uh, hopefully by the time this goes to air, uh, that'll be up to date, but it's really close to up to date now. So pleo.io, scroll down the bottom and find our careers page. We're at 518 people right now. We plan to go to, uh, current plan is a little over 1,000 by December or end of December. We are hiring for pretty well everything you can think of, and we are hiring for everywhere. We're remote first. Uh, decision made at the beginning of COVID by our uh, founders that they would be remote. We would be primarily a remote first company. We've got people from Montreal to Novgorod, from Uppsala to Cape Town at the moment. Love it. Uh, we did have somebody working off a beach in Thailand, uh, but he's it. come back to come back to Denmark. Um, we expect to be across zones, time zones. We expect to be remote first. One of the important things to understand about Plio is, as I said, we are very trust driven. But as it says on our hiring page, the key thing we're down, we're down to earth, we're human, and we're honest. People always come first. 
at Plio. Okay. Skills, experience are great, but the attitude is even more important. We're very, very fast moving. We're very, very dynamic. We, are, we talk a lot internally. We collaborate a lot. Okay. We've got no room for brilliant jerks. Cool. We think we're pretty successful at weeding them out. Uh, we don't have any at the moment. We've had very few in the past. Yeah. Our people ops team is extremely good at helping us to find people. The most important characteristics for anyone coming in is to be comfortable with the idea that things will change quickly. Cool. To be comfortable with the idea that we will collaborate on things. To be comfortable with the idea that you will be trusted to make significant changes to our product. You will be trusted to make significant changes to our company. Um, we don't muck around when it comes to trust. Uh, and that's uh, that has been quite confronting for some engineers in the past is, what, you mean I get to make a decision about a key technological change? And it's like, yes, you do. You don't, you don't need to ask permission. <laughs> yeah, okay. Obviously, there's some boundaries of that. If I wanted to go and buy a new building yeah, for Clio, I'd probably have to talk with, with Yapper about it. But uh, if I could convince him that it was a good decision, he would trust that I know what I'm talking about. Good. Uh, and that's Plio. So please come join us. We are hiring like crazy. We need people. And we're building. Love it. I love the energy, <laughs> the passion. Um, technology agnostic, uh, just so I'm really clear for people as well. Uh, are you happy to interview people from all backgrounds? Yep, yep, definitely. Um, we've got a few bits and pieces that we're keen on. We like to see, you know, uh, some combination of modern languages, Python, Kotlin, Java, uh, maybe .NET. Um, if you know a little bit about cloud, that's good. If you know a little bit about things like Docker and Kubernetes, that's good. But these are pretty well standard parts of an engineer's toolkit now. Um, yeah. And we have plenty of gateways to assist people to skill up um, good. in areas that are missing. If you come from a background of modern programming languages, want to work remotely anywhere, trust, and being human uh, are obviously some massive, massive values at Plio. Come and talk to come and talk to Robert. Don't bombard him, but have a look <laughs> at the careers page as well, and and see what they can show you. It's been you, an absolute sir, have been. Uh, an absolute gen. Thanks for taking us on that journey. And uh, I'll be I'll be watching Plio. I'll be watching the journey. I actually might even invest in the product, not as in financially invest in the product, but uh, maybe start thinking about using the product as well. Okay, you know where to find us. I do we indeed. Will we will sign you straight up. <laughs> Love it, Robert. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Good luck for this Have year. A grand day. Okay, Cheers, mate. Hey guys, thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can.
Thanks, guys.